Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. Each weekday at noon, you'll find me here on 90.3 FM or WPLN.org. This is Nashville as our brand new daily show here at WPLN News. We'll go deeper on the news of the day and bring you perspectives you didn't know you were missing. Join us as we journey into the identity of our city and region. Temperatures are expected to drop this weekend. That's why today's show is all about how our unhoused neighbors cope through the bitter cold and what the city is doing to help. But first, we're going to take the temperature on hate groups in this town. Earlier this week, the Southern Poverty Law Center released a report indicating the number of active hate groups in Tennessee has dropped over the past year. That's a good thing, right? Well, here's the catch. Here to explain is WPLN reporter Paige Flager. Paige, welcome to This is Nashville. Thanks for having me, Khalil. Really good to have you. So, all right, let's start with the report itself. I have to be honest here. I'm not super eager to click on something called the... Year in Hate and Extremism, but break it down for me. What are some takeaways? Yeah, so the big takeaway this year is that for the third year in a row across the country, the number of hate and extremist groups are actually on the decline. Um, But like you said, it's not necessarily cause for celebration. The Southern Poverty Law Center was saying that a lot of this hateful ideology is becoming more mainstream. So people don't need to become a card-carrying member of a hate group anymore to be able to express those perspectives. In your story for WPLN, you mentioned that January 6th was a factor in all this. Can you explain that? Yeah, exactly. I think the thing that the Southern Poverty Law Center was saying about January 6th, um, which kind of kicked off 2021, um, was that it just showed us what can happen when misinformation goes mainstream. You know, how many people can be motivated and mobilized based on what we're hearing sometimes spread on television, um, what we're seeing spread through the media. um, And what the results in the end of that mobilization can look like, which is what we saw at the Capitol. And the that insurrection was obviously deadly. So, mm. Okay, so the report says that there were 28 active hate groups in Tennessee in 2021. And that doesn't really sound great. But help put that into perspective for me. Like, how does that compare to our neighbor states? Yeah, so for a while we were seeing a lot of hate groups sort of... Um, predominantly focused down in the South. Um, And that's because you see a lot of groups that are influenced by the history of the Ku Klux Klan, sometimes also the Confederacy and neo-Confederate ideas. Um, And Tennessee has actually stood out for a couple of years in that we have more hate groups per capita than most of our surrounding neighbors. And so um, I think we, as as we're talking about these things and the influence of these hate groups and, and what that can look like uh, in our everyday lives and our laws and our legislature, I think it's, it's important to think about Tennessee and what message the state is sending uh, to, to these groups about how welcome they might be here. Okay, that's a really dubious distinction if there ever was one. I'm wondering, aside from the numbers themselves, are there any other trends that you can talk about? 
Yeah. So one of the big things that the Southern Poverty Law Center was highlighting this year was just the fact that as these ideas are becoming more mainstream, specifically anti-LGBTQ um, sentiments and ideology uh, are making their way into the legislature. So like I had mentioned, you know, last year, Tennessee was one of many southern states specifically that passed a lot of legislation that was targeting um, the LGBTQ community and targeting specifically trans youth. Um, and this year, we're looking at an increase in, in bills that are also targeting the LGBTQ community here. Um, and so when we see these ideas becoming more mainstream, and they're not just part of like this sort of you have to go, you used to have to go seeking them out, right? Mm -hmm. It used to be like you would have to go onto a specific website or a corner of the internet or get in touch with people in order to meet up with these groups in person. Now, a lot of these ideologies, you're hearing them coming out of the mouths of politicians in our state house. Um, and there were actually, uh, there's been a lot of reporting done about how last year some hate groups actually helped influence some of the laws that came through Tennessee's legislature. So speaking of hate groups, not my favorite way to start a sentence, to keep it real, yeah. but we actually host an annual hate group conference here in Middle Tennessee, right? Yes. So every year um, for about 10 years now, the American Renaissance group um, has been coming to Mon Montgomery's Bell State Park um, here in Middle Tennessee and hosting kind of this conference. And the American Renaissance group is sort of different because I think it, it's it's sort of like if these white separatist, white nationalist ideas are dressed up in like academic clothing, right? Mm. Um, so it's like suit and tie kind of um, white separatism. And they like to they like to talk about this idea of wanting like complete segregation based on the f like what they say are statistics um, like crime rates and births out of wedlock that prove that like white people are superior to other people. That's their whole kind of zeitgeist. Um, and they've been choosing Tennessee and our uh, state parks for a long time because they couldn't find hotels or private businesses that would allow them to be there. But they say that Tennessee refuses to be bullied. And so they're able to, to host their conference here every year. Mm, okay. What are you looking out for in this coming year? Yeah, I think... As we're looking forward, like we were chatting about with the legislature, I'm interested to see what's going to happen with some of these anti-LGBTQ um, bills. Also, you know, when we're looking at things like hateful ideology and racism, um, thinking about what we are and are not teaching in our school system and the education system, that's becoming very um, you know, it's becoming a culture war, right? So mm -hmm. I think that will be definitely something to keep an eye on. Are you thinking that these these things with the legislature, the culture war that is happening, it's mm -hmm. tying in? How much of it, really quickly, how much do you think is election related? Yeah, we are. The Southern Poverty Law Center said that they are seeing people who are like, uh, you know, using this ideology, running for positions in their local school boards, judges. Um, so you are seeing it becoming election related for sure. Okay. That's WPLN reporter Paige Flager. Paige, thanks for joining us and thanks for your reporting. We're going to take a short break. When we come back,
We'll talk about cold weather and how our unhoused neighbors get through severe drops in temperature like the one we'll see this weekend. We'll pick this discussion up in a moment. This is Nashville. your host, Khalil Colonna, and this is Nashville. Tonight, temperatures are expected to drop below 30. Now, a lot of us are privileged to not have to worry too much about that. But for our unhoused neighbors, it's a different story. Today, we'll meet a few people who lived through this past winter and learn how they coped. Plus, we'll hear what the city has been doing to help. First, we're going to head out to a local campsite. It's one of more than 100 across Davidson County, where unhoused people live year-round. Winter is one of the more challenging seasons. As a part of her work with Sacred Parks Ministry, Reverend Lisa Cook supports people with low income and those living without houses. That means often visiting those campsites. This past winter, our producer, Tasha A.F. Lemley, tagged along with Lisa as she headed out to one local campsite in preparation for another cold day. Today I'm visiting a campsite in East Nashville and running out in front of people on the road. And I am delivering propane to a friend of mine. She lives in a tent uh, in a campsite and she is someone who will not go into shelters. So she uses this propane with heaters uh, to stay warm when it's really cold outside. For Lisa Cook, this is really just another day. As a street chaplain, she provides essential food, resources, and laundry service to folks living in extreme poverty. And all of those three things, all three of those, are done under the umbrella of pastoral care and relationships, which is what this ministry is really founded on. Now Lisa, she's a second career minister. Her relationship to homelessness was a little different when she worked in the corporate world. And this was before uh, downtown had been revitalized. There was not much down there except the spaghetti factory. And I would have to walk from my building on 2nd Avenue down past Broadway. And that was my first experience in realizing that there were people. I would be getting off like at midnight and there were people outside. And, you know, the only people outside then, it was not a party town then, were the people who lived there. Did you ever talk to them? No, I was scared of them. And they left you alone? They left me alone. And yeah. you left them alone? And I left them alone. <laughs> now you're making up for lost time. Now I'm making up for lost time, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but that was my first, uh, my first realization that that was a thing. We get to her friend Angie Basham's spot at the end of a dead-end road. All right. Let me tell her we're here. We are at the guardrail. Lisa walks around the van, opens the side, and supplies fall out. Then she pulls out a large propane tank. These things are a lot um, lighter when they're empty. Hey! Thought I'd save you some steps. Hey, Angie, this is my friend Tasha. Hello, Hello. Nice to meet you. So how long did that tank last you? You know, 
I tried to time it, but I've used it so much because it's been so cold. Yeah. But I want to say at least three to four days. Okay. Uh, but yeah, it's 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 way better than the little green ones. Lisa invites Angie to laundry day, and she jumps at the chance to get everything clean before moving to a new tent. It's red and brown, and on a little bit of an incline, which is going to help in the rain. I ask Angie what her advice is for other people who, like her, are trying to stay as warm as possible when the temperatures drop. Okay, well, first thing, on a tent, because a lot of them are the, just the three season, I take flat bed sheets and safety pin them across the roof. On the inside and out, it acts as a, a insulation. Yeah. Um, it's because the roofs are netting, and then you got the canopy that goes over it. If you take the bed sheets and safety pin them, you got a barrier. You don't have just a straight netting, and it blocks the air. I know, and believe it or not, it, it makes the huge difference. You gotta adapt to your surroundings. We say goodbye and head back to the van. All right, I'll see you tomorrow. Okay, thank you. My dear, I love you. All right, love you too. Thanks. Uh-huh. We're gonna hear now from a few others who have firsthand experience, like Angie, navigating through the cold without a home. Joining us are Vicki Batcher, Terry Warren, and Alex Smith. Welcome to This is Nashville. We're grateful that you're here. Now, Terry, I'd like to start with you. You were unhoused this past winter, is that right? Oh, uh, that's correct. Can you tell me about your experience? Well, let's see. My, my daughter got frostbitten, and we had to call an ambulance and take her to the hospital. And, uh... They did what they could for them. See, I used to be a certified nurse tech myself, so I knew a little bit more that could be done for them, what they were doing. Hmm. Well, when we got back to the tent, because we stayed at the Jefferson tent, the Jefferson Street uh, encampment, when we got back, Salvation Army, Miss Tiffany uh, contacted me and said that they were coming down there to get us out of there that day and put us in the shelter. And then the next day, we'd go in, we're going into housing, and everything happened just like she said, and now we're still... Uh, uh, in temporary housing, and I really thank Miss Tiffany. I also thank Miss India because without them too, none of this would be happening for us. These people are really out here in the organizations trying to help the homeless and get housing for us and things that we need so that we can eventually get to permanent housing. Mm, okay. Vicki, share some of your experience with me. When you were unhoused, what did you do when the weather got cold? When the weather got cold, it was just kind of knowing um, street smarts, okay? Listening to other people, learning what would work for us. Um, it was myself, my son, and my ESA dog, Faith, um, which she helped a lot keep us warm. But the sh cold weather shelters never worked for us. Um, the regular shelters never worked for us. We'd use blankets. Um, we had lived in an RV uh, when the temperature went down to two degrees. That was numbing. That mm. that was so real and humbling to go through. Um, lots of blankets, Faith being next to me. My son in the RV, because we had no heat. It was uh, basically a metal shelter. Mm. And he was up in the bunkhouse. We lived in a class C and he built a tent and had covers all over him. We managed to, to stay, you know, without any medical conditions because of that, but it was a learning process. Um, and then later, which this other gentleman was just talking about, we learned about propane heat. Um, we had a propane tank 
in the RV, but it wasn't working properly. Wow. So we learned about these little buddy heaters and the propane. And yes, the single ones only last a couple of hours, but those big tanks did last us like three, anywhere between three and five days. So we were fortunate there. We had lived in a car at, at the first part of our homelessness. And that night in, it was a late November that the temperature went down and I couldn't feel my toes. And my minister called and he said, Vicki, you ready to come in? And it's like, yes, yes. So we went to the church and they let us live in a youth room at our mm -hmm. local church, uh, which was wonderful. Um, and we started getting good jobs. We got on our feet. We could only afford um, a hotel. And that was where the, the feet started thawing out a little bit more. Mm -hmm. um, but just using what you, what you learn from other people. Now, Vicki, you mentioned this a little bit, and I think it's fair to say that some people listening would say, you know, people can just go to shelters when it gets cold, but it's really not that simple and easy, right? It isn't. Um, when we first became homeless, my kids were working uh, second shift in, mm. at, uh, in Hermitage. So there was the consensus of my kids would have to quit the job, stand in line, when the shelter would open for them to get a bed, which made absolutely no sense to me whatsoever. Mm -hmm. So that was a barrier. Um, with the cold weather shelters that I've been on the task force with, we're starting to limit those barriers to where it would have been a safe place now for us to go into. Thankfully, we're not homeless anymore. If you're just tuning in, I'm Khalil Ekelona, and you're listening to This Is Nashville. I'm visiting with some of our neighbors who have personal experience living through winters without houses or shelters. Alex Smith, I want to turn to you. You were unhoused, but now you're actually an outreach worker. What are some of the things that helped you survive when the temperatures dropped? Some of the things, is it's like what Vicky said, when you get around the older generation, they inform you on exactly what to do, what places to go to get warm, uh, what heat vents, how to properly imply your tent with sheets and bed spreads and how to properly uh, make a fire that lasts all night long. Mm -hmm. um, I really learned a lot from the older generation that was already there. Because when I was first on the street, I was 18 years old and I had absolutely no clue what I was doing. So they really kind of navigated my way through the winter. And then also being willing to trust the nonprofits when they will have shelters and be like, hey, we will be here at this particular time, tell your people and, you know, you, you, you got to inform everybody. Everybody got to be on one accord. But it was really uh, hard for me to like realize that some people wouldn't be able to come to the shelters or they just don't want to come to the shelters. What was difficult for you in, in that recognition? Well, it, it was more or less of the mentality. What do you mean? Well, the missions have a bad, bad reputation. And for the homeless community, once you say shelter, the first thing that they think about is the missions. 
which is not true now. There's overflow shelters. There's uh, so many different nonprofits that's opening up churches and open up buildings so people can actually get in nowadays. But when I was homeless, it was mostly, hey, there's a shelter open, but you know, it's either the mission or you go to this church that's on kind of the outskirts of town and you gotta be there at three o'clock to catch the bus or catch the van. And a lot of the older generation that I kind of hung around and look up to, they would never go. And it was heartbreaking, especially when I know it was cold and I know it was snowing and like they shouldn't be out there, but their mind was so misconstrued and hurt so much that they would never choose to use a shelter. So the traumas from their experiences in the past, it's it's made them not even consider going to a shelter, even those who may be doing the right thing and truly there to help people. Absolutely. And it's still going on today. Like that stigma has never left. Now, there might be some new rule changes at the men's mission and the women's mission. Hey, more power to you. But they still hasn't changed from the past 15, 20, 25 years of negativity that it has brought. It hurt more than it does help. So I understand why people, when it gets cold, they're like, I'm never going to a shelter. Terry, what do you think it would take for the city to earn your trust? I would think for them to earn my trust would be to take some of that advice that I've been given. I've been on Channel 5 and a couple of others. I was the official spokesman for the Jefferson Street encampment. And as I stated then, and I still state now, there's only two reasons why people are are in the condition of being homeless as, as they are. And that is, one, because they want to do their drugs and they know they can't do that in in these uh, places that they take them for shelter. And then there's two, they got the good people that just can't do no better and they need actual, either way it boils down to actual counseling. Mm. They need the people to first get in there and help these people, get uh, get their mind together, get them in the right place where they need to be. Then they can go ahead and start getting them into housing. Because if you move them straight into housing and they still got their problem, guess what? All you're doing is moving the problem. Mm. A question for all three of you to answer. Who do you have more faith in, in terms of actual effective help, the city or nonprofit organizations? Vicki? Neither. Myself. I did it myself. Um, I put my street smarts along with what I knew uh, with computers, and I did it myself. I didn't rely on a nonprofit. The first time we ever saw a um, uh, a caseworker, she told my kids, you both need to get a job. And it was like, no, that's not going to work either. So that ended that. Um, we just, we, every person is unique, you know, and I don't agree with the, with the going out of, um, of just allowing people at affordable housing who have, who don't have drug problems and such. It's not until you move into affordable housing that the cobwebs start cleaning up out of your head because it takes a while. And, and to have somebody on the streets just because they've made bad choices 
is not. I was homeless because I was evicted after eviction after eviction. No drugs plate. So let's stop saying all homeless people are drug or, or addicts and alcoholics because there's a lot of addicts and alcoholics out there that aren't homeless. The statement that I made was that there's two problems. You got the people that are on the drugs and you got the people that are not. I wanted to clear that up because Look, I was homeless, and I wasn't on no drugs, so I surely didn't mean that to sound like all the people that are homeless is on drugs. And I'd also like to add that, once again, the the solution to me is the nonprofits and uh, the other organizations helping, because that's who helped us. Hmm. Without them, we I'd probably still be out there. Now, Alex, you are an outreach worker. In your experience, what strategies actually work? See, I it, it's very difficult for me to answer this this particular question because, in fact, I can see both sides of the coin. Hmm. And here's the thing: when I was homeless from eighteen to twenty eight, I didn't trust no one. No pro- nonprofits, no, I didn't even know what a nonprofit was. Mm-hmm. But I didn't trust nobody from the city either. But as time went on and these new nonprofits start to come, they was my friends. They was my allies. They helped me out. So it's the youth that is moving. It's the new crop of that's not about old money. Only way that Nashville can truly move forward if we get oldness to be removed. The old ways, the old stigma, the old money, the old thoughts, that has to be removed. There's a new age. There's a new time frame. We are doing the work to continue to move forward, but we're constantly backtracking four or five times because there's someone with more money that has no idea choosing to make the decisions when they have absolutely no right to make the decisions. Uh, now a nonprofit like Open Tables, the Joshua Project, People Loving Nashville, those people 1000% trust them because they have gained the trust of the homeless people that's on the street. They have been there where they can give them a phone call at any given time, any given time. Vicki, I want to give the final word to you. What do you think, what do you want people to know about being unhoused? What what do you want them to get out of this show? Got about a minute left. I want people to know that don't be afraid of the homeless. Um, Help them. Um, Show compassion. You know, you see a street vendor, they're trying. You see somebody pulling a a cart, they're trying. Help them. Get them off the streets. Get more affordable housing. That's Vicki Batcher. Vicki, I want to thank you and Terry Warren for sharing your stories with us. Alex Smith is going to hang with us through the break. When we come back, we'll take a closer look at what the city is doing to assist people who are unhoused, not just during the winter, but year-round. More in a moment. This is Nashville. Welcome back. I'm your host, Khalil Ekelona, and this is Nashville. 
Tonight, temperatures are expected to drop below 28 degrees. And as a result, the city's extreme cold weather overflow shelter will open its doors. It's a brand new strategy the city rolled out last November to help unhouse people through the coldest conditions. Metro Social Services started offering free rides to a new cold weather overflow shelter on Brick Church Pike. Riding the bus that night from downtown was Gary Beloch. He was grateful to be getting out of the cold, he said, especially because he knows not everyone has been so lucky. Well, it's a blessing that they have this thing like this here. These shells are hold out that man. One of my uh, friends, when I was staying at the uh, mission, literally died up under the bridge, froze to death. Ugh. Wow, froze to death. Local advocates for people experiencing homelessness have been working to prevent things like that. And joining us now are two who've helped implement this new bus and shelter system this past winter. Brian Haley is the director of the Neighborhood Health, and Kathy Jennings is director and shelter committee chair at The Contributor, Nashville's bi-weekly street newspaper. Kathy and Brian, welcome to you both. Hello. Thank you. Alex Smith is an outreach worker who's still on the line with us. Alex, welcome back. Hey. <laughs> Brian, first of all, I want to apologize for mispronouncing your name. It's Brian Hale, not Haley. I apologize for that. That happens to me all the time. And as someone who does have that happen to him, my deepest apologies. Oh, um, good. Yes. But I want to start with you. You were a big reason the city implemented this new bus and shelter program this past winter. How did it go? Well, I think the, the, the key part to this is the people that we serve were the big reason that we did this. And most of the credit really goes to all of the staff at Metro who made this work. And it took a lot of effort. Everything from the people in the procurement office and the budget office, folks who were working on the front line to figure out how to pull this um, pull this whole operation together. And then our partners at WeGo who worked so closely with us to make this successful. It's just been such an incredible team effort. And I think everybody, there are so many unsung heroes in this process. And we really should be proud that a city like Nashville has public servants like that who are willing to really, really go all the way out and try to make, make this the best experience possible. And we've come so far in the last three years. I mean, we're in a much better trauma-informed shelter space. We've got a brand new transportation system. And as we're working out the kinks, we've got big plans for what's happening next. So I've, I've never been more excited about what we're doing and what we're most importantly, what we're doing together for the for those who really need this shelter. Kathy, I know you were involved with this, too. And so I'm curious. Yes, yes. I'm curious. Mm -hmm. You know, what do you think worked and what did it? So Nashville is getting bigger geographically. And so having that transportation plan, so outreach workers weren't shuttling back and forth to the shelter helped a lot. We had a hub and spoke plan. So people could go from downtown for free on the bus to the shelter, or there were rides that picked people up at various locations around town. Um, the Brick Church facility is a new facility. We hope that that will be a permanent facility. Um, it, has, it has worked because it's just a good location and it's set up well. So right now, the temperature has to be 28 degrees for the emergency shelter to open. Question I have mm -hmm. is, why that temperature? Because, you know, 30-some degrees is pretty cold. You know, historically, this has been such a point of contention between nonprofits and Metro. Um, originally, the idea was that people would not come in out of camps at um, 32 degrees, right? Because you leave everything you own mm -hmm. when you come into shelter. 
Um, but that, that's, that's not true anymore. We are filling our shelter. In fact, this year, for instance, our numbers um, between all the nonprofits and Metro, and I think that that needs to be said, the mission, the Nashville Rescue Mission houses the bulk of people in their shelter program. They, right now they're doing 600 plus. Room in the Inn, in their program, 150 to 200 a night. So Metro Shelter only opens as an overflow shelter in these emergency conditions. Um, we have passed um, a resolution in the shelter committee of the continuum of care and the continuum of care is, a, is the organizations, the nonprofit organizations and individuals in Nashville looking to end homelessness to ask the city to raise that to 32 degrees. Neighboring, I don't know of any other city that has it as low as 28 and I've looked. Um, so 32 degrees should be the benchmark for that to open and we've asked Metro to do that. So is it about just getting bodies to fill these staffing positions so the shelters can be open? Or is it about the particular type of person who is coming onto these positions, understanding that they have to have an understanding and actual empathy for the people that they're working with? Well, it's, it's both and, and I, let, let's talk that through really quickly, but also let's clarify what we're talking about staffing. We're asking people to be on standby to be ready to work an overnight shift from about six o'clock in the evening to about eight or nine o'clock the next morning with 24 hours notice, right? That's a pretty tough, that's really hard to get people to staff. So True. when, especially in this labor market, that's a real challenge. I don't wanna take anything away from that challenge because we've gotta fix it. But what I do wanna do is embed this in the trajectory that we've been on because three years ago, Metro opened its cold weather shelter in an old jail. That was triggering for so many people. Mm. And the transportation system was really non-existent. Then we moved to the fairgrounds as a pandemic emergency, and now we've moved to an even better space that's a really dedicated facility and available for longer term. Now we have a transportation system that picks people up from all over the city for free and gets them into that space. And we put this all together during a period of a in the middle of a pandemic crisis. So while we've got to get our arms around that staffing issue and it's real and it's not gonna be easy to solve, we've got to also at the same time say, we've made a lot of progress in a short amount of time with a lot of headwinds. And that gives me a lot of optimism that some of the ideas that Kathy's gonna talk about are really gonna pay off. So again, we're gonna, we've got to fix it, but we can and we will. If you're just tuning in, I'm Khalil Ekelona and you're listening to This Is Nashville. We're talking this hour about living in the cold when you're experiencing homelessness. Now, uh, Kathy, I'm definitely gonna to get to you with staffing, but Alex, I wanna to jump to you real quick. We talked a little bit about skepticism of shelters in the last segment. From what you've heard so far and your experience, what advice would you give to Kathy and Brian to improve the services that shelters provide? Well, the great thing of it is I'm on the same task force as <laughs> Kathy and Brian. So there's nothing I can really tell them that they don't already know when it comes from me. But what I will say to the public is they need more help from the city. They need more help staffing. They need more help in just in general, because the way that we're going, we're going in such a positive way in the past three years that I have never seen before the whole entire time I was homeless. And I'm talking about 10 years. Mm -hmm. I have never seen the progress that we have made 
especially in these past seven months and how we have pushed and pulled and dragged and clawed our way to be where we are today and be accomplished that we are today. So I'm so grateful for Brian and Kathy and Vicki and everybody else that is a part of this task force, that's part of this movement, because we all know what we have to do. We all will move together as one unit to continue to move forward and continue to change the narrative and change the perspective. So I'm so grateful and so honored to know both of these people and to call them my friends and and just so proud in general. Kathy, Brian said you have some ideas. I and our audience are interested in hearing them. Let's get into it. What are some of your ideas to improve, particularly staffing these facilities? You know, it's not, it's really not just my ideas. Um, Vicki has come to the shelter committee meetings. Both Alex and Vicki are on, um, on the task force. And, and I work with a lot of outreach workers that are actually out there doing the jobs, um, like Tasha interviewed them. So what we really need to do is think outside the box, right? We don't need to look at one source for the staffing, nor does there necessarily, and I'm talking in the future, have to be one location for a shelter. Mm-hmm. As the city grows, other cities have set up different, like we have the bus, we have the stops for the, the mobile transportation, that we could set up different geographic locations for these shelters. Um, the other possibility is instead of having, putting everything on Metro, right? Metro needs to run the shelter, Metro needs to pull from their staff. As Alex told you, most of the people they see daily are the outreach workers. What if we were able to provide funds in the form of an RFP from Metro to some of these nonprofits so that they could have enough staff that they could flex and do um, overnight shelters also, Mm -hmm. right? And so the same people would see the people they've been working with. So we always talk about a housing first philosophy, right? And we've mentioned that a few times. And, and that is the most important thing, that permanent supportive housing be built. We're not talking necessarily about workforce, you know, $1,000, $800 a month in rent. We're talking about supportive housing with services very close, like neighborhood health, um, you know, like a social worker to help people that transition into that housing. So ideally, shelter should be something that people move into and then move out to, to housing. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the first thing it needs to do is keep the people alive. Um, and, and that's what we're looking at is, is um, you know, we'd like, you know, RFPs and we're going to have a retreat as soon as this shelter season's over March 31st. Um, I would encourage the public to join the continuum of care. Anybody can belong to it. I know I have different members of the public coming to my shelter meetings. It is always helpful to have other people's perspectives. And I'm really glad that you mentioned the public because in your idea of having uh, different facilities across the city, a lot of times when an initiative like that is proposed, nimbyism, not in my backyard happens. People, they worry about the problem, but they necessarily don't want to be a part of the solution. So I'm really happy that you mentioned that. You know, but shelter may be the first step. It's a long one. And we've been talking about shelters and transportation. Alex, what other cold weather resources are there right now for those of us experiencing homelessness? Well, that's more of a question for Brian and Kathy. I can only talk about from the personal experiences. Mm-hmm. So you might want to pass that question to them. Br- Brian? Sure. 
happy to. And, and Alex is being modest. But, uh, his contributions in the task force are fantastic. And one of the things that I think we, we want to talk about are as we move through this, the people that are can be served, as Kathy mentioned, in this overflow shelter doesn't take anything away from the fact that the, the mission is available every day without a break. So they're there seven days a week. Um, 365 days a year and room in the end is also available starting in November and ending uh, as the, as we close out the shelter season so we've got a, we, we've got a, a pretty big infrastructure and if you need shelter tonight those are the places that you can go there are other specialty housing providers that serve our community there are special uh, safe haven does work with families there's also Salvation Army and, and so on and so forth but if you start at the mission and you start at room in the end then we can connect the, your specific needs or your specific circumstances to the most appropriate shelter provider. But we always start with the mission and then room in the end. And that's why, you know, speaking as a healthcare provider, Neighborhood Health has a co-located clinic at the mission. We've got a, a clinic next door to room in the end, and we want to continue to expand services. And we're not alone in this. All of us are trying to do everything we can to bring services to where people are. It's been a magical moment to be able to do that over the course of the pandemic with the new street medicine program. We're working closely with these other organizations and we want to make sure that we take care of these needs. Kathy, in your view, what needs to happen next for this city? I would like to see the shelter system become more user-friendly. I would like to see it connecting people to resources into having outreach workers in there, putting people in a database system called HMIS, which is the first step to housing. Um, I think it needs to go geographically located. I think that pulling people in at 7 p.m., pulling them out at 7 a.m. Um, can waste a lot of energy and time on everyone's part. So I would like to see it going geographic. And I would like to see the nonprofits taking back the shelter system with it being funded by the city. Um, I think Vicki has a great idea with some transitional housing as far as these pallet shelters. And I know they talked about that in Metro. Um, they actually have some pallet shelters for COVID quarantines over at the mission. Um, I don't know that that's a bad idea. I have personally never been okay with sanctioned campsites only because I think then that it gives people a reason to forget about building housing and, and no one should have to live in a, in a, in a campsite in like weather like this or in 28 degrees. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it, we always need to keep our focus on housing. But if, if we have pass through places that are just transitional where people can stay out of the cold and it moves us towards the permanent supportive housing, I'd be willing to look at that. All right, Brian, you have about 30 seconds left. I'm sorry to do this to you, but can you tell me, you've been a part of a lot of changes. What do you think needs to happen in the next four years? Well, two things. Number one, we need to follow the example of Austin and a number of other cities where they've given hundreds of millions of dollars from their American Rescue Plan funds and put that into housing. We've got to have leadership in Nashville that makes that commitment. And the second thing we've got to do is we've got to start taking public health seriously. One example is we've got to make sure that our hospitals in Nashville aren't discharging people with homelessness who have COVID and giving them a bus ticket. That's happening far too frequently. We've got to make it stop. And we've got to have a solution for those hospitals and for the people that are affected. That's Brian Hale, Director of Neighborhood Health. We were also joined by Kathy Jennings, Director of The Contributor and Outreach Worker, Alex Smith. Thank you all for being here. Really appreciate it. Okay, before I let you go, let's switch gears. 
I'm going to hop out of my host chair and into the passenger seat. Each Friday, join me as I ride shotgun with one of our fellow Middle Tennesseans. Now this time, we're tagging along with a vintage clothing vendor to see East Nashville through her eyes. It's also a little sneak peek for Monday's show, which is all about the vintage and thrift scene here in Nashville. But for today, I met up with Becca Ray Cope at Anaconda Vintage on Trinity Lane. How long have you been into vintage clothing? Since my mom started taking me to Goodwill when I was 10, 11. But I I got me and I started thrifting when I was 13, 14. And then as soon as I could drive, that was like the first place I drove. You know, I remember getting lost on the Briley Loop. Okay. And like thinking that I was on the inner city loop, you know? Uh huh. Like 2465. And I had no idea what I was doing. But like, luckily it's a circle. So if you just keep going, you'll find it. Yeah. Well, do you want to ride around in the van? Let's do it. Okay. Let's do it. By the way, his, his name is Vaniel. Vaniel. That's wonderful. All right, so Vaniel is a white van with blue flames. He's bitching, y'all. He's bitching. How long have you lived in East Nashville? Oh, man. Uh, let's see. I mean, I started coming over here in 2008. I started coming to this side of town because of shows. My friend, Greg Thornton, he used to throw punk shows on a slab of cement in his backyard that he owned the house. It was definitely, I mean, way less developed, like all that shit's new. Like, it was a little bit sketchy, but I I always have felt safe in Nashville. And I mean, part of that's being a white woman. And I don't know, maybe I'm just naive. All the bars that I choose to go to in this town, like I feel comfortable just like putting my purse in one place for the night and then coming back to it at the end of the night and it's still there with everything in it. Wow. So. We're cruising down Gallatin Pike and she points out vintage shop after vintage shop after vintage shop. There's Music City Vintage, the next vintage store. Okay. And that's like, that's really cool because that was a niche that was really needed. It is more like, I would say masculine clothes, mm-hmm. like t-shirts and hats and sneakers, you know. And the I vintage scene here kind of exploded after Trisha Brantley opened up Hip Zipper Vintage in Five Points two decades ago. I call her the godmother of vintage in Nashville. <laughs> She's so kind and uh, like when we first opened, she brought us like the things that you hold hangers in. Just was like, I got some extra ones of these, thought you guys could use them. I was like, and she has a list of every vintage store in Nashville. There's just so much out there to try and value and appraise. That's the godmother of vintage herself. She says technically anything from before 2000 counts as vintage these days. And that's a long period of time to be talking about clothing and accessories and stuff. So some of it is going to be affordable and some of it is going to be just for the collector and the person who's got the expendable income to be able to, you could apply the same conversation to art, to cars, to stamps, (laughs) to coins. I mean, it's no different in the vintage clothing world. Have you been to Wilburn Street Tavern? No. Okay. This is a really cool spot. Woman owned, Miss Teresa. She also owns Moss Tacos. She's a badass lady. Teresa Mason opened up the beloved Mas Tacos Por Favor as a food truck. 
then moved to the corner of McFerrin Avenue and 9th about four years ago. Then she took over the Wilburn Street Tavern, one of the oldest bars in this neighborhood. Now, this place is seriously cool. It's an old school dive bar. Funky alligator art hangs, music bounces off the walls. No TVs. From what I could tell, this place is no frills, all chill. We find a few seats at the back patio. When we were inside, Becca Ray was given a gift of sorts by the bartenders. <clears throat> yeah, I guess I left my jacket here. Jacket here. Jacket here. Okay, cool. <laughs> I'm sure I left it on the back of this. And they they got it for oh, you. Of course. See what I mean? I feel comfortable just like putting my purse in one place for the night and then coming back to it at the end of the night and it's still there with everything in it. Woody and Buzz Lightyear. That's oh, yeah. awesome. It's an embroidered denim Toy Story two. Nice. Yeah. And it's like wine. Ooh, there's stuff in the pockets too. Let's see what I got. There's a lipstick. On the way back to the Anaconda parking lot to pick up my car, Becca Ray tells me about her journey into country music. You see, for fun, she would sing at karaoke spots and bars with her musician friends. Suddenly, she was getting random message requests on social media. Hey, do you and your band want to play a show at Acme Feed Seed? And I was like, you don't know I know how to dance. <laughs> <laughs> and so I got a gig at Acme, and I, I had that for a while, and it was fun, but I, that's not what. I mean, I'll probably gig again one day, but that's not right now. Yeah, so. that's awesome. Wow, thank you so much. Yeah, anytime. I've, I've got, obviously I've got so much to say. Thanks for tagging along with me for that ride through East Nashville with vintage clothing vendor, Becca Rayco. Tune in Monday for a full show of our city's thrift and vintage scene. That's a wrap for our second week of This Is Nashville. We've got some great episodes under our belt already. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I highly recommend our episode on North Nashville's arts heritage. And you know what? Check out our debut episode while you're at it. We talked old and new Nashville and shared what we've got in store for you. Thanks to all of you for tuning in this hour. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Tasha A.F. Lemley. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos-Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tuthope. Shout out to our news director, Emily Siner, and our theme musicians, LaRange and Namir Blade. The conversation doesn't end here. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at This Is Nashville. I'm Khalil Le Colonna. We'll see you on Monday, everybody, and be good to each other.